everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm Samantha Lom, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we'll be talking with Marielle Ovayenmars about her new book, Memory Politics in Contemporary Russia, Television, Cinema, and the State. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Would you like to say a couple of words about yourself? Uh, yes, of course. Thank you. Um, I've just started a new job now working as an assistant professor in cybersecurity and politics at Maastricht University in the Netherlands. Uh, but previously, I've been working as a researcher at the University of Helsinki for some time at the Alexandri Institute. Uh, and before that, uh, lecturing for a bit at the University of Amsterdam and doing my PhD at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And the book is actually based on, uh, on my PhD dissertation. So would you mind telling us what are memory politics and why are they important to study? Yeah, so when we, when we think about collective identities and we think about nations and nation building, then it's very obvious that history plays a very important role. So where does this idea come from that a certain community is indeed a community? So the shared history is very important there. Uh, so that the group believes that they share a certain history, they share certain traditions and so on. Uh, so obviously we learn about this history in school, uh, but you also learn about it through films, through books, and other representations of the past, or just cultural representations. Uh, but of course, history is also very actively used in politics, and this is where the memory politics comes in. So you can use it to support a certain policy, or you can use historical references to legitimate a government, for example. And when history is used in this rhetorical, more symbolic way, so to achieve a certain political end, uh, this is when we can speak of memory politics. Uh, so in the book, I look uh, specifically at Russia uh, and how the Russian government, um, but I also look at other groups and individuals, how they have used cultural memory and history to promote their ideas about how the Russian state should be governed. So what is a typical or traditional Russian governance? What kind of state is Russia supposed to be? And they draw upon history to then support those ideas. And the reason why this is, uh, why I think it's a very important topic uh, in the context of Russian studies uh, is, first of all, because the Russian government has used it very, very actively, especially since Vladimir Putin became president. So it has turned memory actually into a very powerful symbolic resource to support their legitimacy, to show that indeed this government is doing it in the correct way. Uh, but we've also seen it as a very important dispute uh, source in international relations. So there have been various con uh, confrontations between Russia and countries in Central and Eastern Europe about the shared past. So, for instance, about the Second World War. Uh, so this memory politics has been uh, very important both for national legitimacy as well as in shaping foreign policy over the past few decades. So you start the book by introducing us to a granite obelisk in Alexandrovsky Gardens outside the Kremlin. How is this object important for understanding memory politics? Yeah, so I've chosen to, to start the book with this, uh, it's, it's called the, the Romanov Memorial Obelisk. Uh, I've chosen this image because it illustrates very well how our understanding of the past as well as what this past means for the present as well as the future, how it continuously changes. And this obelisk has actually been refashioned multiple times and in a way that shows us how memory politics in Russia has also developed over the past century. Uh, so this is a granite obelisk and it was erected in the beginning of the 20th century 
1914, and this was on the occasion of the 300th anniversary of the Romanov dynasty. Um, but interestingly, of course, we know that this dynasty then did not have much, many more years left. Uh, so with the establishment of uh, the Soviet Union or after the, the revolutions in 1918, they chose to reshape this memorial. So what you often see with political turnovers is that all of the representations or monuments of previous regimes that they are removed, for example. But in this case, they decided to just reuse it and refashion it in a way that fitted the new regime. So what they did, they removed uh, the double-headed eagle, so the imperial eagle that was at the top, they removed that one, uh, but also all the names that were inscribed, so that the obelisk had the names of all the Tsars, they replaced those with the names of socialist thinkers and of various revolutionaries. Uh, so they reshaped it into a socialist monument, which is, of course is quite interesting. And of course, the placement is also relevant. It's next to the Kremlin, so it's a very, very important symbolic place there. Uh, and it continued to be there, even though, as we know, the Soviet Union also went through various stages of uh, re-envisioning what the state stands for. So, for example, uh, the symbolic importance of the Second World War gained uh, much more weight under Brezhnev. Uh, but at the same time, this monument still remained there. But what is now interesting is that there's another turn to the story, namely that in 2013, it was restored. So they restored it to its original. Uh, so what they did, they then removed the names of the socialists and of the revolutionaries, put back the names of the Tsars, and also put back the double-headed eagle. Um, but the interesting thing is, of course, that they restored it into the shape that it had had only for a few years, even though it had had its Soviet image for many, many more decades. Uh, so this is a very, very interesting turn, of course. Uh, there's another dimension to it, and that is that they unveiled it and also they um, supported the idea that it had to be restored uh, because they had to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the Romanov dynasty. Uh, so this is also very suggestive, since, of course, we no longer have a state that is ruled by the Romanov dynasty. Uh, so to still want to celebrate it, this is very indicative of the memory politics. Uh, so the reason why I've chosen this is because it symbolizes memory politics as it has been done, uh, especially under President Putin. So three elements here. Uh, first of all, it shows this emphasis on historical continuity of the Russian state. So indeed, we speak of continuity of present-day Russia through Soviet Russia, through Romanov times and back all the way into a thousand-year history is what is often spoken about. So they claim that this actually is all part of the same state. These are not different states, but this is all the, the history of the one state. Uh, it also shows that memory politics is actually very layered, so it's not completely new. It is also reinscribing new meanings into already established memories and into already established objects, and in this case, in a very literal sense, of course. Uh, what I also found interesting here is that it shows that they want to reclaim lost traditions, or at least make it look that way. Uh, so you can imagine it's very difficult to establish a new practice or to establish a new tradition. For example, try establishing a new holiday and then explaining to everyone why it's relevant, why it should be celebrated. Uh, so if you can present it as actually a revival of something that has been lost before or a restoration of something that has been repressed, uh, then this is much easier. It is already familiar in a way. There's already a basis on which you can build. So this is a, are the things that this 
particular obelisk symbolizes and why I've chosen to start the book with this image. Well, thank you. Um, so your, your book is really a series of case studies looking at certain historical events, uh, figures, and how they've been reinterpreted and portrayed in literature and popular culture. How did you choose which figures and events to focus on? Yes, it was actually very difficult uh, since there's obviously a, a great abundance of images and figures that you can choose. Uh, so first of all, of course, uh, limited by the time scope. So in the book, I look mostly at the period of 2000 to 2012. Uh, so it had to be memories or images that have been used in that period. So that have been used both within politics, actually representing a certain vision on Russian statehood, uh, but also sufficiently important in cultural representations. Since what I'm interested in uh, in this study is to also look at how does the sphere of politics and the sphere of media and cultural representations, how do they work together? Uh, so if, for instance, the state introduced a new holiday, uh, what images do we then see in TV productions, for example? So how is this interaction between the two spheres going on? Uh, so it, need, it needed to be sufficiently present in both of them. Um, but another thing that I wanted to do here was to show that the Russian government is not the only actor. It's not the only actor who has historically formed ideas about how the Russian state should be governed. There are actually various other groups as well, uh, and I wanted to be able to show those as well. Uh, so that was another thing to take into consideration. So I've chosen them to be, be able to show those different aspects of memory politics and uh, those different actors. Uh, so for example, when we take uh, one of the case studies, uh, Time of Troubles, uh, this has been a core narrative of the state memory politics. Uh, so they've introduced a new holiday in connection to this, very, very um, extensive investments, both in a political sense as a symbolic sense as well. Uh, so this was a core narrative to support this idea that under President Putin, stability and prosperity had been restored following the tumultuous 1990s. So they viewed the 1990s as a time of troubles so in parallel to the, to the early 17th century. Uh, and then the new president arrived, and he was able to restore stability. Uh, so this particular case study allows me to show this more state-sponsored side, uh, a, a memory propagation that is very much pushed and led by the state. Uh, but if we take, for example, Alexander Nevsky, another case study, uh, then in this case, it is not so much the central government, uh, but it's much more the Russian Orthodox Church who has been using this image to put forward their idea about how the Russian state should be governed, that Russia is essentially an Orthodox nation and state, uh, how the relationship between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russian government should be organized. Uh, so in this case, it's a very different actor, and they are very powerful as well. They have a lot of symbolic capital. Uh, then another one, Ivan the Terrible. Uh, this one I chose because it allowed me to look at more fringe figures, uh, who nevertheless have quite some visibility. So in this case, I, really, I looked at uh, the use of this memory by ultranationalist thinkers and also by fundamentalist orthodox groups. So these are both groups who, from a very different perspective, still use this particular memory uh, to put forward their idea of Russian governance, and it indeed seeks to undermine the current political structures. Uh, so I wanted to show it both from, from both sides, uh, how memory is used to support the current regime, but how it might also be used to actually undermine or challenge the, the powers that be. So to show it from all those sides 
and to move away a little bit from just focusing on the state itself, focusing on, for example, uh, political speeches, but to look at those other figures as well. Just out of curiosity, what holiday was created to honor the time of troubles? Yes, I, I should have mentioned that. So this is the day of national unity. Oh, and, uh, that day. Yes, yes. And it's celebrated <laughs> on the 4th of November. Yeah, um, I figured it was a replacement for uh, Dane Revolutia, the revolutionary day. Yes, actually it is. Uh, so this is a quite, a quite an interesting story. And also it shows how, well, you could say opportunistic or pragmatic this memory politics is. Uh, so in, in the Soviet Union, you had certain dates, certain traditions that were very important. And of course, the, the celebration of the revolution, this is one of the central holidays, the core dates of the year. And this was celebrated on the 7th of November. Uh, but of course, when the Soviet Union disintegrated and you have the new state is being established, this is the Russian Federation, it is no longer a socialist state, uh, then suddenly it also no, no longer makes sense to celebrate the revolution. Uh, so what do you do then? So at first they try to refurbish this, so just attach a new name, uh, but this never really caught on. Uh, and also at the same time, common, some communist groups continue to actually celebrate the holiday, so you still had these marches and demonstrations. Uh, of course, this is not something that the government was, uh, was agreeing with. Uh, so what in the end they then decided uh, was to offer an alternative holiday, so not on the 7th of November, but on the 4th of November, uh, so in terms of having a day off, it's still quite close. Uh, and then they introduced this new name, so the Day of National Unity. Uh, but uh, as I mentioned before, this uh, reintroducing lost traditions, this actually is an, an example of that as well. Uh, so they say that this is actually not a new holiday, but it is the revival of a Tsarist holiday. Uh, so it actually is something that was stopped under, uh, under socialist rule, and then it was reinstated. My experience is the propaganda has not taken very well. Dane the Rodnova Yedinstva is one of those holidays where we don't go to work, but no one really knows why. But we're not going to work, so we really don't care. Uh, I've asked plenty of people, you know, what it's about. No one has any idea. I mean, the best explanation I've ever heard from Russians is that it's a replacement for the revolutionary holiday. So I'm not sure that the the propaganda has stuck. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I think if you look at opinion polls, and this is pretty much the, uh, the image you get as well. Uh, so even being able to properly uh, remember the name apparently is an issue. Uh, but nevertheless, of course, uh, there is a thing about uh, establishing a holiday and what this then means, um, or the image that it's connected to. Uh, so I think that the the larger image, so this image of uh, of the president as this central figure who has restored uh, stability as the guardian of stability, uh, I think that this has indeed stuck. So the, the larger image, so viewing the 1990s as a time of troubles and then restoration afterwards, uh, I think in this sense it has been successful, but uh, the holiday proper perhaps less so. So let's move on to your first case study in the book, which is actually the Tsarist minister Pyotr Stolypin who is best known in the West for his agricultural reforms and being murdered by populist terrorists. Um, how has he been reinterpreted and why is this important? Yeah, so uh, Pyotr Stalipin, I thought it was a very interesting case to work on um, because he's, he's actually not very well known, uh, even though there now is a statue of Stalipin in Moscow. So you can imagine like, why, why did they put up a statue if it's someone that people do not really know? 
And so in this case, if you look at a few quotes of Stalipin, so he was, um, he was the prime minister, uh, but he was also very much known for being a, uh, being able to speak well in front of an audience, or especially some speeches in the Duma have become very famous. So there are a few quotes that have been very, very popular. So one is, uh, they are in need of great upheavals, but we are in need of, in need of a great Russia. And in this case, they are then socialist revolutionaries. Uh, but of course, in present-day Russia, you can place all kinds of opposition groups into they. Uh, but we are in need of a great Russia. So this appeals in a present-day Russia to restoring Russia to its great power status after the humiliation of the 1990s. There are very, very clear uh, resonance between these original quotes and then the present-day reality. Another one that I find very interesting is uh, give the state 20 years of internal and external peace and you will not recognize present-day Russia. Uh, and this, again, you can see very well how this would fit with the current political regime. Uh, so you would want stability or you can use this as an argument that stability and having centralized leadership actually is very important. That if you want to restructure a state, uh, that is very necessary to have the centralized leadership to be able to complete that process. Uh, so there are very obvious connections here in terms of quotes, um, but the image of Stalipin and what he represents, so the changes that he proposed, so of course he was uh, working on changing the way that the Russian state was organized so after the revolution of 1905. While at the same time, he had to work out how to deal with these terrorist movements. So on one hand, modernizing, on the other hand, repressing. And this again is something that fits quite well with present-day Russia as well. So already during the 1990s, uh, among politicians, uh, Stalipin was an, a popular figure, or it was, was re referred to quite often. But in terms of having any popular uh, knowledge about what he represents or any popular support, this actually is not the case. And you could actually say that uh, Stalipin was viewed quite negatively. Because if you look at Soviet historiography, then of course he's a representative of the Tsarist regime. So he was viewed very negatively or purely negatively. So only as this hangman in chief, so only known for his repressions and not necessarily as a great reformer. So this is something that has come much more recently. Uh, and it's also quite, uh, the reason why I wanted to do this particular case study uh, is because uh, it is a new memory. So there is nothing there to begin with, no uh, cultural representations. People do not know who he is. They do not know what he did or what he represents. And if they do know something, then it's a negative image. Uh, so why would you want to associate yourself? So in this case, the president, President Putin, has associated himself directly with Stalipin, or used this image as uh, to exemplify uh, why the current government is on the right track. Uh, so this I find very, very surprising. Uh, and there actually is another person, uh, Nikita Mikhalkov. So he's a very famous actor and director, but also one of the core people in the Russian film and television industry. So he's a really important cultural figure. He's also been promoting Stalipin for a very long time. So he also appeals to Stalipin to say, we need this type of more conservative modernization for Russia. This is the type of leadership, the type of governance that we need. Uh, but what is interesting here is that they really tried. So you see that they've been using it quite actively in political speeches. Um, there have been TV series, uh, especially Mikhokov has been very, very active here. So also trying to uh, make a documentary on the topic, trying to popularize the image. 
uh, but still it looks like it hasn't really caught on. Well, my experience is that Russians have terrible knowledge of statues. <laughs> you know, I do a little exercise with my students where we talk about Confederate statues in the U.S. And I ask them, like, the statues of people in Kirov and, you know, who these people are, what they represent when they were put up. I have had people tell me that Lenin is Stalin. <laughs> you know, That's interesting. Like, yeah, I'm like, the bald guy is not Stalin. <laughs> oh, but, but, you still ha- but you still have a statue of Lenin there. Yeah, we have two Lenins, and actually, they recently put up a Stalin in Slobodskoy, but that's a different story. Yes. Um, you know, they tell me things like there's a statue of a, a local cosmonaut, and they tell me that's Yuri Gagarin. I'm like, that is not Yuri Gagarin. <laughs> so I feel like the Russian knowledge of a lot of these figures popularly is actually quite bad. Yeah, we might ask if that is not more, a more general thing. Uh, I think that this is actually quite quite common uh, especially where this is why everybody think uh, this cultural memory and cultural memory studies is quite interesting, is that yes, you can have all of these remnants, so objects of memory. So you have the statues or a book. Um, so they are there. But if people do not really understand what they are about, then it actually doesn't work. It needs to be actively circulated. People need to know what it is. They need to know what it represents. Otherwise, it doesn't have any societal political value. So there can be a statue but if someone doesn't know what it represents, it doesn't mean anything at that moment. Well, let's move on to Nevsky, because I feel like he's a much better known figure. Uh, certainly in Kirov, there was an Alexander Nevsky Sabor that the Bolsheviks tore down and or blew up. Um, hmm. And he's traditionally associated as sort of the defeater of the Teutonic Knights um, and has been portrayed in a lot of different media. How has he been portrayed? I know one of the most famous portrayals is actually the Stalinist era film directed by Eisenstein, released at the eve of World War II, um, and is often considered you know, modern commentary on the politics of the era as much as a historical film. Is the Soviet portrayal of Nevsky different from the Tsarist portrayal? Yeah, so Nevsky, of course, uh, has a very, very long history because he's a 13th century prince. Um, so what is interesting about Nevsky is that uh, it has actually accumulated various meanings over time. Uh, so f- in the beginning, uh, it was more religious. Uh, so it was seen as, uh, as representative of uh, the more orthodox states. So he was sanctified. He was seen as uh, defending orthodoxy against attempts to catalyze uh, Novgorod. Uh, so this was the more like the original um, attribution of meaning to, to his memories. So there were more emphasis on the religious aspect. Uh, but then later on, so this is actually on the, under Ivan the Terrible, uh, you see that they are trying to reinterpret this image and it becomes a more state-oriented image. So he's then reshaped into being a founding father of the Rurik dynasty. And so, of course, this then creates a genealogy for the Moscow state, uh, which then leads to Ivan the Terrible, so creating a historical foundation uh, for, for his rule. Uh, so this adds another layer. So we move from religious more to state-bound. Uh, but then in the 19th century, there emerges a little bit more of an emphasis on military achievements as well. So seeing him as a military con- commander, uh, but also in line with just nationalist tendencies of that century, he's then reimagined also as a national hero. So he was not just defending a state, he was actually defending Russian, Russian language and so on. Um, but then if we move to the 20th century, so under Soviet rule, uh, he is then 
rediscovered. Uh, there's this period under Stalin uh, leading up to, to the Second World War and during uh, where you see the active revival of referring to history. So you have all these big films of Alexander Nevsky, but also about Ivan the Terrible. There are various ones. Uh, and in these ones, it's emphasized that he is a very glorious military commander. So emphasis just on the military achievements. And here we see this parallel to contemporary political uh, conflict. So, of course, you can make a very easy parallel between Alexander Nevsky fighting the Teutonic Knights or the Soviet Union trying to stave off Germany. Uh, so there's a very direct political, uh, political comparative there. Uh, but then since then, uh, or more recently, from the 1990s onwards, uh, there has been a revival of looking at Nevsky, uh, but taking into consideration all these other previous meanings as well. So it's no longer just the military commander, but we see mostly a revival of seeing his as a religious figure. So emphasis on the religious aspect of that memory. And the Russian Orthodox Church actually has been a very important player here. So they've been really pushing this image. Uh, so in 2008, there was a very popular TV show where they, uh, it's called the, the Name of Russia. And it was a competition. So all, uh, all citizens, so through, through the mobile phones and online voting, they could choose who was the greatest Russian of all times. Uh, and on that show, so Alexander Nevsky was one of the finalists. And on that show, he was actually represented by uh, then-metropolitan Kirill. So he was represented by an official representative of the Russian Orthodox Church on Russian television. And then he actually won. So uh, Alexander Nevsky was chosen the name of Russia. Uh, and what was interesting there is that on those shows, uh, Kirill was trying to uh, emphasize that he's a saint and he's a religious leader and so on. Uh, but then, of course, they had to make it interesting for TV. So they have to make an introduction clip and they use all kinds of visuals. Uh, but which visuals do they use? Of course, they, they go back to the films that we have. And which films do we have? Well, those are from Stalinist times. And what do they emphasize? They emphasize the military commander. So it's actually quite interesting that we see the conflict of all these different interpretations, different visions on Nevsky and the different people behind that. So who prefers which image? So are there not um, Soviet-era films post-Eisenstein, post-World War II on Alexander Nevsky, or is he sort of abandoned in favor of other imagery? Uh, as far as I recall now, it's, it, like the major one is actually the, uh, uh, the Stalinist time one. Uh, apart from that, not the, not the major ones. That's sort of what I thought, but I wondered if yes. I'd missed one. Yes. Well, I'm sure there's a small one or a series somewhere there always is. Uh, but in terms of having major productions, uh, then I think uh, well, there's a newer film from 2008. I think that's the first major production about Alexander Nevsky. So let's move on to uh, Ivan Grozny, otherwise known as Ivan the Terrible, and in particular his Aprichnina which you talk about the legacy and reinterpretations of. Could you briefly explain to our listeners what Aprichnina was? Yeah, so Ivan the Terrible, he was uh, the, the head of the state for a very long time. Uh, but there's this one period in his rule uh, that's referred to as Aprichnina. Uh, and it's the period in which he divided the country up into two parts. Uh, so he basically retracted, you can say, from court and created one part of the territory, so this is the Aprishina, 
uh, that was directly ruled by himself, so by Ivan the Terrible uh, and his uh, elite guards. And these are often referred to as the Aprichniki. Um, but what they are noted for is not just that this was quite a exceptional organization of the state, um, but they are mostly noted for the very violent repressions. Uh, so, of course, you also have the other part of the state, so the remainder of the territory. And this was left to be ruled by the noblemen, by the boyars. Uh, so this was the outcome of uh, the conflicts that Ivan had with his courts and with his noblemen. And this is the period that is often seen as, as a rule of terror, basically. Uh, and also we have, like, for example, attacks on, on Novgorod. This is all in this, this period. So how has Aprichnina in Ivan been reinterpreted over the years? So Ivan the Terrible is one of the most contested figures in Russian history. Uh, I think uh, you can only put him on par perhaps in the sense with, with Stalin and to some extent with Peter the Great as well. Uh, so on the one hand, he is lauded. So he's lauded for military successes, for a massive territorial expansion that he achieved. Uh, so he's seen as an imperial ruler that extended the Russian territory across Eurasia. Uh, but on the other hand, he's of course seen as this very excessively violent ruler, as a tyrant who uh, presided over court that was basically dominated by paranoia and by repression. Uh, so you see the, the, the uh, conflict between these two opposing images uh, that uh, still persists up until this day, and it's very difficult to move beyond this. Uh, so no matter who tries to uh, activate this image, they will get both sides. It's very difficult to just emphasize uh, military success. Uh, people already know about the repressions as well. So you cannot get beyond this. And you see the same thing with the, the memory of Stalin. Uh, they tried to popularize. Yes, he, uh, he succeeded in, in uh, being victorious in the Second World War, so the victory over Germany. But at the same time, he was a repressive leader. Uh, so you see these opposing images. Um, and even though uh, there have been attempts to revive the image of Ivan the Terrible, so this was also one of the uh, one of the memories that was revived under Stalin, uh, with some some major productions there. Uh, you see that it's very difficult. Uh, you cannot get away from from the negative image from the bloody tyrant, uh, and it's even become to such an extent that now when we speak about Iran, then Stalin immediately comes into the picture as well. Those are usually seen as one and the same, uh, often also because the uh, Stalinist representation of Ivan is, uh, is typically interpreted as being a commentary on Stalinist repressions as well. Uh, so they are often conflated, these two. Uh, but what I look at in, in the book are uh, two groups uh, that I already mentioned before uh, that have now taken an interest in both Ivan as well as the Aprichina. Uh, so the first group are very fundamentalist Orthodox groups, so the ones who are more on the fringes of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, and they are pushing for Ivan the Terrible to be sanctified, so they believe he should be made into a saint, and also that the Russian state should be reorganized more to the image of them. Uh, but the second group are various thinkers and politicians who you can categorize as being more ultranationalist. So, for example, I look at Alexander Dugin in the book, um, and they say that the only way to change the Russian state, uh, they say that all kinds of things are wrong with the current political structures, uh, especially pointing to corruption, for example. Uh, but they say that you cannot actually change this through uh, the structure as it is. Uh, but the only way to create fundamental change is to 
establish a type of new aprishina, so something that is outside of the established political structures, and that then can revive or change the, uh, the state, and that this is the only way that it can be modernized. Uh, so both of them use the image of Ivan to say that the current political structure is wrong, it should be undermined, it should be challenged. My experience with Ivan is that the uh, popular public image of him is either sort of tragic or in some ways kind of comedic because you see things like, you know, the Repin painting where he's holding his dead son. That tends to be uh, an overriding image. But of course, I think the most famous Soviet representation is actually from the comedy, Ivan Vasilievich Changes Profession, um, which definitely makes him as a comedic character that you don't see with other figures such as Nevsky or even Stalin. How does this uh, influence people's perceptions and how does this mix with the other interpretations of Ivan? Yeah, the interesting thing about Ivan and, and the memory of Ivan uh, is that there are some uh, some things that are already from, from the writings from the 19th century. So for example, from Karamzin, so from these big uh, books about Russian history, um, that say that, that his rule was uh, was divided into several parts, so several stages. Uh, so you can say there's a good good Tsar, bad Tsar. So he had some good periods and he had some very, very nasty periods. Uh, and this is quite interesting. Uh, so it's not necessarily saying that uh, his entire rule was violent, but in the beginning he was actually benevolent, but then something happened and then afterwards uh, everything went wrong. Uh, so this then allows for all kinds of interpretations. So if you can see it as good Tsar, bad Tsar, uh, then this opens up all kinds of possibilities for viewing him differently. Uh, of course, uh, this late Soviet film, uh, is I think it's a very funny one. Uh, but of course, why you can joke on Ivan uh, is because it's quite far removed, uh, so it's quite distant. Uh, this allows for more, uh, more critical views or more uh, satirical views. Um, but at the same time, I don't. I don't actually know too much about the the history of that film. To what extent they they uh, implied some criticism of Stalin or de-Stalinization in 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 that film as well. Perhaps you know more. Well, I've certainly watched the film multiple times, and I don't really see a whole lot of criticism. It's just a silly film about people traveling in time and switching um, uh, one Soviet neighbor with Ivan Grozny and sort of the like mishaps. It's a Shurik film. Uh, there really, I don't think, is a lot of social commentary. But it, I think that's characteristic of sort of the Brezhnev period. Yes, yes. And of course, it's much more fun to, to swap places with uh, with medieval times than it is with something that's uh, more close in time. So was Ivan um, ever banished from public life like Stalin, since there are so many parallels there, you know, with the de-Stalinization and you know, all the monuments being removed, him sort of being taboo, um, and then sort of the revitalization that's taken place of Stalin in the last couple of years? Well, to some extent, yes, because uh, there actually did not used to be any statues of Ivan. Uh, so this is one of the uh, key historical figures that was not uh, memorialized in that way. Um, and what is actually interesting is that the, this has changed very, very recently. And I actually had to uh, update my book at the last moment because all kinds of statues of Iran were being erected. Uh, so I had to put in all kinds of new statues. Uh, so you now have multiple ones. Uh, and part of them, uh, 
well, some of them you could say that they make sense. So, for example, there is a uh, there's a uh, a garden in in Moscow where they have a sequence of Russian leaders. So all Russian leaders are there. So all the busts of the is Russian this leaders. Tretyakovka. Uh, yes, I okay. believe so. Uh, so of course it makes sense that he's included there as well. So he's just one of the Russian of the leaders of the Russian state. Uh, but at the same time, they also placed one of uh, like a full size uh, statue of him as well at the entrance. Uh, so this is then quite quite interesting. Uh, but there is also a statue in Arul. Uh, so you can imagine that there have been uh, all kinds of demonstrations against the erections of these statues. Uh, I think that the public response is somewhat similar to when there are plans of erecting a statue for Stalin. It is pretty much seen as the same thing. So why would you erect a statue for a tyrant? Well, I have to say the statue of Stalin that was erected in a village in Slobodskoy district in Kirov was not protested. People seem perfectly cool with that. Much like the statue of Zerzhinsky they put up two years ago on Lenin Street. My students don't know who he is. And then when I explain, they're like, oh, maybe that is bad. But it went up with great fanfare and almost no protests at all, which I thought uh, was it's, it's, inter it's interesting, yes. So you do see differences between when it's uh, in, in a smaller region uh, or when it's in one of the, in, when it's in the capital city or if it would be in St. Petersburg, for example. Uh, so obviously, uh, you have differences in how history is being viewed as well in different regions. There are quite significant differences between metropolitan areas and more rural areas, for example. Uh, so this might also explain why you might have more protests uh, when there are plans for erecting a statue in Moscow than if it is somewhere else. Yeah, the statue that people freaked out about here was the statue of the Romanov family um, dressed as saints. They originally wanted to put it in the public garden and the communists had a fit. So they made they banished it to a churchyard uh, in a corner. <laughs> That's interesting as well. Well, uh, it's it's a weird statue to begin with because the Romanovs were never in Vyatkakirov. They may have been on a train that went through Vyatkakirov, but they never came here. Now, like Catherine the Great and one of the Alexanders was here, so a statue of them would make sense. But the last Romanovs were never here, so it's a weird sculpture to begin with but yeah the communists are still fairly active here in Kirov. Yeah so this was obviously a uh, a statement by some orthodox group. Yep it's absolutely. Yes yes and this, uh, this is an interesting one uh, where yes they were sanctified at the end of the 1990s uh, but at the same time they do not have like full uh, full status so they are sanctified as passion bearers uh, which means that they did not necessarily... So there's a difference. If you uh, were murdered, but you could have prevented this if you would have given up your religion, then you are fully sanctified. Uh, in this case, they could not. Right? They could have given up their religion. They would have still been assassinated. Uh, so that's why they've been sanctified as passion bearers. So a slight differentiation there. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, you now see icons of them everywhere. So they don't have to perform posthumous miracles like Catholics to become saints? Well, there are probably many stories that they do. <laughs> yeah, I was always kind of amazed by that myself. 
So let's look at the time of troubles. That's sort of the last major event you look at. You know, this is the period of instability following the death of Ivan Grozny. Something may be described best as like a Russian Game of Thrones. How has this period been reimagined over time? Or is it only Putin who has really started to reimagine it? Yeah, so I already uh, spoke about this a little bit before, um, but this is also one of the, the memories. So the, the historical event it refers to is the early 17th century. So you have the time of troubles, uh, which is a period of uh, occupation by Polish, Lithuanian uh, rulers. And it's a very, very chaotic time. Uh, but then it ends, well, according to legend, by Minin and Pozharski, who uh, lead a, a popular resistance and then they succeed in overthrowing these occupying forces. And then afterwards, the Romanov dynasty is established. Uh, so this is a very uh, core or central moment in, in recent, uh, relative recent Russian history. And this, of course, has been revisited over time already. Uh, so, for example, uh, after the, the victory over Napoleon, uh, so this was, uh, then you see also uh, referring back to the time of troubles in terms of symbolism, uh, so, for example, the statue of Minina Pozharsky that we have is also from that time. Uh, but now, in the present-day Russia, it has again been revived. Uh, so, as I mentioned before, this is because it fits very nicely on the 1990s and then restoration. Uh, so, you have a period of chaos, of indeterminacy, um, and also of Western interference. This is one of the, the elements that is often mentioned. Uh, so in the case of the original Time of Troubles, this was from uh, Polish-Lithuanian occupying forces. In the more contemporary version, you could think of, for example, the IMF, so Western advisors who are seen as being uh, the cause of economic collapse and so on. So all kinds of Western interference. Uh, but then you have the period of restoration, so regaining stability, regaining, regaining order, and then uh, at the end also regaining prosperity. So this fits very well, uh, and it has been the central narrative of, of the state memory politics. Uh, so you can use this to demonstrate uh, that there is a continuity of the state, that this indeed is uh, the same state, same Russia, uh, and it's actually connected to a more cyclical imagining of uh, the development of Russian history. So the idea that it consists of alternating periods of, of chaos and then order. So the original time of troubles is chaos, and then you have a reestablishment of order. Uh, and this goes on all the time, so around uh, the victory of Napoleon, same thing. So first have war, so it's chaos, and then reestablishing order. Uh, so this fits very well as well. Uh, and it has been the core, and also because it uh, embodies this idea of national unification. So all different groups in society uh, join their forces to oust these occupiers. Uh, and in the contemporary parallel, uh, this is then used as showing that all these different national groups that you have in the Russian Federation, uh, so the Russian state actually is a very multinational and multi-confessional uh, state, uh, that this is one core of its identity, that this is just what the Russian state is and what it has always been. And the, the memory of the time of troubles has been very functional in showing this as well. And does this give us the holiday Dane Pobeda is Polakov, the victory over the Poles day? 
just another one of those newer random holidays that no one quite knows what to do about, but it's very awkward. But isn't that Polish isn't friends. that the same? Uh, isn't that the same as the Day of National Unity? No, I think I think no. No, when it's is that in, celebrated? It's in the spring. In the spring, okay. I think. Oh, I hadn't heard about that one. Yeah, that one was awkward when we had Polish friends over. We're like, hey, we're celebrating victory over you. Yeah. Yes, because I've heard that that was one of the names that people were mistakenly using when they were actually talking about the Day of National Unity. No, I think it's a different Uh, holiday that I also get off from work and that I'm like, I don't have to work, so I have no questions here. Yeah, so there have actually been two victories over the Poles. Interesting. So what role do you think pop culture plays in the reimagining of historical figures, things like movies, TV series, and video games? Uh, I personally think that they are actually very, very important. And this is also why in in the book I I give more or less half-half space to looking at uh, the political mobilization and all of those traditions and policies and statues, and then half to these cultural representations So what kind of films have been made? What kind of TV series and TV documentaries have been made? uh, And by whom? Since, of course, it takes quite some investment to pull off a big blockbuster film, as you can imagine. Um, But when you think about where people get their knowledge, so how do they actually uh, learn about history and what images stick in their mind? uh, Then these more pop cultural representations are actually very important. Uh, so it can actually be the case that the only thing that someone knows about Alexander Nevsky, for example, or uh, about Ivan the Terrible or about the Time of Troubles is from this one film that they've seen. Uh, so this can be very, very influential. Uh, but then what I'm interested in, uh, while they are watching, they are also learning about qualities of leadership. They're also learning about what is good and what is evil, who is the hero, who is the enemy. So all of these core uh, ideas about how should a state function, uh, what are the groups of the Russian nation and who is not part of the Russian nation. Uh, These are all embedded into these representations. Uh, So it's important on two levels. So one, the actual core ideas of what is that about, what actually happened, Uh, but then also on the second level. So what does that actually mean? And at the same time, if you want to... uh, bring across a certain vision on a historical period, and then pop culture and all kinds of various uh, cultural representations are also much much easier to use. Um, You provide the viewer or the reader uh, with a very coherent narrative. So you have a hero, and he has certain qualities, and he does certain things, and then it has a result. Uh, So it's very easy to memorize. It's much easier to memorize a popular fiction uh, narrative than it is to read an entire history book and then still being able to retain all of those elements. So do you feel that these sort of pop culture forms are state-sponsored propaganda or do they peddle versions of history designed to secure maximum viewership or does it depend on who's making them? Uh, I think you actually see a combination of both. Um, and in this case, I do have to emphasize that what I've been looking at is from somewhat earlier periods up until 2012. Uh, and since then, you could say the state control has intensified even more on, on the cultural sector. Um, but you see that, of course, yes, on the one hand, uh, you have state television, you have a very strong hand of the state also in financing film production and providing the infrastructure and so on. Uh, so they can certainly uh, 
shape what is being made. Uh, so, for example, through subsidies, if you subsidize the production of films on a certain historical topic or just on his history in general, uh, then this will obviously shape what kinds of uh, movies or series are being made. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at uh, what then is actually produced um, and what kind of uh, implicit meanings they have, uh, then it is quite diverse. It can be quite pluriform. Uh, so it's not necessarily all strictly in line with what the government is stating in its official statements. Uh, and this in part results from the fact that, yes, they need to get a maximum viewership. They are commercial uh, companies as well. So State TV, for example, uh, they still have, they still want to have advertisement income. Uh, they are commercial. So of course they will do it in such a way that it will attract an audience and that it will be popular. So they always have to balance both. So balance both the political interest as well as the commercial interest. What role do you think the internet plays? Because um, with the internet, you can get, you know, not just Russian state TV programming, but you can get programming from all around the world. For example, the HBO series Chernobyl has been very popular with my students. Uh, and that, of course, is made by HBO uh, from an American perspective. Does the internet help bring in different perspectives or is it limited to only younger people or uh, it, does it play a role? Uh, I think that yes, of course, uh, it, because it uh, it allows you to uh, to get access to all kinds of other interpretations of history. So both just in terms of information, uh, so being able to, for example, read Wikipedia, uh, not just in Russian, who, that is probably most edited by Russian users, uh, but also in different languages. So if you're fluent in different languages, you can also see different versions. So you might actually see very different information. Uh, just in general, having access to uh, other publications. Uh, but also having access to different cultural representations. And in this case, I would even say that it's not only Western productions, but it can also be Russian productions. So if it's, for example, a more uh, underground art house film that did not have a very broad distribution for various reasons, uh, then it can be still very popular online. So one example that I analyzed in a book is a film uh, on uh, by Vladimir Mizoyev, so about uh, Boris Godunov, uh, so this connected to the time of troubles, and uh, it was pretty much banned from being shown for various reasons. Um, but still, online and back then on Vkontakte, you could still very easily distribute film. Uh, it gained quite a broad viewership, uh, so then you're still able to to reach certain audiences. Uh, this is now more difficult. So. On the one hand, because of copyright restrictions that are now finally being uh, enforced a bit more in Russia, uh, but also just in, in general, you see that the, the Russian state is much more active in restricting uh, alternative versions uh, or alternative interpretations of history. And this also concerns online. So, for example, you are no longer uh, allowed to glorify Nazism, as they call it. Uh, and these are, uh, these are quite enforceable. Uh, so you do see this change. Uh, but what I find interesting, the example that you mentioned of uh, Chernobyl, the series, uh, is that uh, you immediately saw a very, very vibrant discussion. So even though it was a Western series and it was uh, uh, it was not a Russian series, you immediately saw a lot of debate in Russia. Uh, and also I had the feeling that they really wanted to view it negatively, uh, many people. Uh, so they were really looking for something that was wrong with it, not necessarily what could be right. 
Uh, and also there's been a, a Russian, Russian counterproduction that uh, unfortunately I haven't been able to watch yet. So it's still to see. Has it come out yet? I thought it was still in production. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it has come out yet. But it, at least it was announced. So yeah, I know I that thought there it will be one. Still in production myself. Could be, could be. So we have to see. That will be interesting to to compare both of them and also to compare the reactions. Because I think HBO actually did a good job on this, unlike Netflix, The Last Czars, which is just horrific historically. <laughs> yeah, so the, the Last Czars, I haven't even dared watch it since I, I read so many very, very negative reviews. Yeah. Uh, including the very infamous shot by now of uh, already having the Lenin mausoleum before he was dead. In 1905, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, um... Yes, yes. Yeah. So do you think your observation on Russian memory politics are applicable to other countries, for example, the U.S.? Um, well, I think that in, uh, every country has its own dynamics, so I don't think that we can um, transfer them one-on-one -on -one from Russia to America. Uh, but if we think of more generally of uh, also more like the methodological uh, approach that I developed, so looking not just at, uh, at, at the states and not looking just at the federal level and official statements, but to look at all of these different actors and just anything that is in the public sphere that is in this uh, space where you have open debate, um, I do think that that is important. So if you would want to study a similar thing in America, I think you should do the same. So to not just look at just the president and the presidential office and so on, uh, but to have more attention to all of these different groups and these different actors. So who is trying to push a certain interpretation? Who's trying to push a certain memory and saying, oh, look, but this is very, very important. And this then means this for how the state should be uh, organized and should be governed. So for example, you can think about uh, using historical references uh, for supporting whether or not Trump is a very suitable president. So is this compatible with the American state? Uh, this is a very much a memory politics type question. Okay, so thank you for your time and your answers. Are you working on anything new currently? Uh, yes, I've actually um, moved on uh, and taken some elements of, of my work here. So, of course, this was already uh, quite interested in uh, information control. So how do you control different interpretations, how the state is trying to uh, organize what people know about history and what uh, interpretations are dominant uh, and how they use media regulation and funding and so on. Um, so now I'm moved a little bit on into the Internet domain. Uh, so I'm looking at how they are trying to to gain control of the Russian internet uh, and also how to shape the understanding of people about the internet. So when they speak about we should ban a certain messenger, so they try to ban messenger telegram, yeah. uh, then how do they actually frame this in Russian television? So how is this sold to the Russian population? Why is this a good thing? Uh, so you can see quite similarities that it's, uh, it's again about uh, how to create uh, legitimacy and uh, popular understanding and support for a certain policy, uh, but then more directed towards uh, internet governance. Well, how successful do you think they are with memory politics? Because the uh, WhatsApp telegram ban was notoriously unsuccessful. They crashed like half the internet never did get messenger banned. Uh, and it was like the subject of loads of memes uh, and jokes. 
Yes, it is. I think it's one of the the instances where uh, they tried but have not been successful. Uh, so they have tried to block access, and this has already been going on for more than a year. Uh, but apparently, it still functions for most users. Yep. Uh, so of course, this is, this is also the result of the uh, technological advancement of Telegram, and them being able to organize uh, all of these different paths for access. Um, but at the same time, it is quite embarrassing for the Russian government, and especially the the federal organization that is supposed to do this, so Ruskom Nadzor. Uh, this has been a big embarrassment for them that they they've actually not been able to to effectively enforce this. Uh, but still, they are pushing and pushing, and uh, also in terms of legislation that's being introduced, uh, you see that they are pushing to more and more centralize- centralization, uh, and you also now have this uh, this idea about creating a separate or sovereign Russian internet. Yeah. Uh, so we have to see um, how this goes when they're actually trying to implement this legislation, uh, since now it's, it's signed into law, but of course then uh, there, there are many processes that need to follow afterwards. So we have to see what will happen in the in the coming few years. Uh, but in any case, it will be very interesting. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's a little less interesting when you wake up and things don't work. Um, more Definitely. But thank you very much for being on our program. And thank you for your insight. Um, thank you for having me. 